Real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast, be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. If you haven't already, be sure to grab your free copy of my first two books, Frugalpreneur and Authorpreneur, by going to thesarahstjohn.com forward slash free. That's T-H-E-S-A-R-A-H-S-T-J-O-H-N dot com forward slash free. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah St. John, and our guest today has made podcasts that routinely top the charts, appear in yearly best of lists, win awards, and generate hundreds of millions of downloads. Please welcome to the show, Eric Newsom. Can you give us a little background, your history, how you got into podcasting? Well, I never really intended to be a podcaster. It became an accidental one of, I was working at NPR and I'd worked there for about a year when, well, actually I started NPR around the same time that podcasting started and a little less than a year into my time there, a number of shows I worked with were starting to experiment around with podcasting and there was some attention being paid to it internally. And so I said, Hey, let's do this thing. Let's find out a way to, to be a part of this. And they said, great, you do it. I'm like, okay, so I guess we're going to figure this out. And we did and uh, stayed a part of it as part of my work for the remainder of my time there over a decade and then left to go to Audible, which is part of the Amazon ecosystem and started their original content efforts there. And almost two years ago, uh, left and started my own company called Magnificent Noise, which I still run today. That's awesome that you worked for NPR and Audible. So when you left those to create your own business, how did you decide to do that? Were you just getting a lot of clients of your own? Well, I I kind of felt like there was, it was a really interesting time in podcasting because things were expanding and growing so quickly. I, I felt that while I had a tremendous amount of freedom in those positions, I still was doing things that other people wanted me to do. And I felt like I wouldn't be fine if I could just do something because I want to do it. And I think it would be interesting to work on. And it may not necessarily have a clear objective outside of that. I really want to do it. And so I'm able to work with the people I want to and not work with people I don't want to and work on projects that I find interesting and not work on things that I don't. And able to really kind of call the shots. And, and if and if podcasting is presenting all these opportunities right now, why not use them to do the things that I want to do? And so a, a woman who I had, had worked for me at NPR, worked with me at Audible, we said, you know, it's, it's coming to a change point here in our tenure there and said, let's go find out what we can do on our own. So we did. Yeah, I was looking at your website. And so you've created podcasts for Gimlet, New York Times. Mm-hmm. TEDx, Audible, and NPR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how were you able to make those connections? I guess having already worked for NPR and Audible, that kind of gave you a foot in the door, basically. Jesse, my co-founder and I, our original idea was not to start an independent company. Our original idea was to create 
a kind of imprint. Like you see publishers have imprints, like a large publisher has a number of imprints underneath it. Almost every major media industry has some version of this. Film studios have small independent like wings inside film studios inside of a larger company in record companies. There's like the labels that are inside the larger company that are all of them thing they have in common is they take really high performing employees and they give them a budget and they're accountable to create projects and return certain expectations on those projects. And we thought we could create a podcast version of that same thing where we could start a label at another company. And as we started talking to potential partners about that, the response we received was incredibly positive. And we ended up having a couple conversations with a couple of them that are like, you actually, not that we're telling you what to do, but you would actually have more flexibility if you're an independent company and blah, 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 blah. And it'll still give you the freedom you want. And so we started thinking about it. And then we decided we would, we have a relationship with the New York Times, which is kind of unusual for both them and us. And they were one of the people we talked to about this idea and kind of came away with thinking, you know, maybe we just do this on our own. And so we did. So do you have any podcasts of your own then that you host? Nope. Okay. I I hosted one project at Audible when we first started and the... There's a couple things. I I think I really lack the patience to host my own podcast because I like working on a variety of things and moving quickly through them. And I think that being really good at a podcast requires a sense of focus and that I don't possess myself, but I'm very good at helping to nurture in other people who do have that. that. And so I found that the way I phrase it, and I even mentioned this in the book, of I kind of came to the realization that my role in life is to serve creators who then in turn serve audiences. And that by helping them be a guide and a mentor to them, they can therefore go out and do that work. And I think that to me is a, a really good equation in which I think I offer my best and I don't get frustrated or upset at the amount of detail work I have to do on one project compared to being on, able to work on a number of different projects. And I think that's why though I have never hosted one. Yeah. And you mentioned your book and that's called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. I actually have that book. That's the book I'm actually reading right now. Mm -hmm. I'm only a few chapters in. So what came first, the book or the company? Company. They kind of happened at relatively the same time. I actually agreed to do the book while I was still at Audible and intended to write and publish the book while I was at Audible. And then there was an, a, a number of management changes at Audible and some strategic changes, which were very smart. I mean, they're the right choices for Audible to make. And I'm like, you know, this is the time for me to exit. I think it's a, a good opportunity for, you know, I was brought in, started up this huge unit that they were creating original content with. I did that brought in a lot of people and said, you know, this thing is ready to be somebody else's problem and source of joy and not mine and left. And when Jesse and I left Audible, she was about to go on maternity leave for a child. She has since had and is, you know, almost you know, a year and change now. And I had this book unfinished and then we basically said, okay, so we'll leave and you have this child and do that and I will finish my book and then we'll then we'll kind of like get our business up and running and started and that's exactly what we did. So then was the book initially well I mean it does say a creator's guide to podcasting in it but was it initially kind of more from the point of like from the audible side like audiobook 
No, 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 no. In fact, I would say that one of the framing principles in making that book was that I wanted to transcend a lot of the particulars of just being, you know, it it mentions podcasting in the title because it needed to in order to sell as a podcasting book. But the idea of great audio storytelling, those apply whether it's radio or audiobooks or podcasts or streaming projects, whatever, any kind of audio storytelling, those things benefit from. And when I was, I've been asked once or twice Seriously, once or twice, but a couple of times people have asked if I was consider writing a book about, because I would give workshops and teach people things and people were like, you should put this in a book. And I'm like, ah, it'll be two chapters long and it wouldn't be very interesting. So, and, and I didn't think there'd be a big enough demand for it, but obviously podcasting has really opened up the gates of audio storytelling. And so probably seven, eight years ago, I had finished another book and had put that out. I was still at NPR and I decided I wanted to learn how to take photographs well. And so I bought a number of books or got them from the library that taught how to be a good photographer or attempted to teach. And there was a couple of those books that I really gravitated towards of like really teaching me the fundamentals and the principles of what makes for great photography. And I noticed a number of them were actually published in the 80s and 90s or before there was digital photography, but they really talked about principles and ideas and they just composition and light and structure. And they were things that felt universal and were kind of above the noise of the change in photography over the past 20, 25 years from film to to digital. And I'm like, I want to write a book about audio that does that same thing, that podcasting is going to change. It changes at a ferocious pace and things will come in and out of fad or fashion, but there are some things that will be consistent and that that book is an attempt to try to create something that does that same thing. That's interesting. So do you have some tips that you could share for good storytelling? Yeah, there's a book full of them. Well, uh, I true. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the most important one, though, is is probably know what you're doing and stick to it. And I don't think that's, that seems really simple, like almost like too simple. And it's also incredibly, incredibly hard. That's interesting that you mentioned photography, actually, because I used to be a photographer, a wedding photographer. And it's interesting how they say that you should Basically, your photo should tell a story, basically. So it kind of goes, there's that correlation there. So do you have some good interview tips? I think the most common error that people do when they are interviewing is they pretend to be, and this is, it's interesting, a couple of times I've been asked this question by people who are interviewing me <laughs> and and uh, I think they're a little nervous that I'm going to say, yeah, just do everything you're not doing or whatever you're saying. Uh, but no, no, the, the most common mistake people make is they try to pretend to be an interviewer. Like they, they think that there's a certain kind of gravitas they need to portray, or there's a certain kind of a way they have to approach questions or way they have to treat their subject or the way that they have to kind of rapport. They have to have all these different things. And I think that with almost without exception, novice interviewers think they need to behave like someone, like mimic someone they think is a great interviewer, whether that is Oprah or Terry Gross or Howard Stern or Trevor Noah or Stephen Colbert. They're like, I need to be like that person. And I see that person, you know, nods a lot or, you know, like, 
David Muir on the, on the news or something. Oh, that person nods a lot when they're interviewing. So I need to make sure I nod a lot. And they ask, they point at someone when they're asking questions. And so I'm going to point at people when they ask questions and I'm going to make, or, or the opposite of like, you know, someone seems very chummy and friendly and like, it's a big laugh riot. And, and so I need to make sure that we're doing that same thing too. And which separates those novice interviewers from people who are actually really seasoned and exceptionally good are those who let go of that idea and stop caring about the role they're supposed to be playing and start just being curious about the other person that they're interviewing. And that what happens is when you stop worrying about what you're supposed to do and just do what you want to know, like ask the questions you want to know and are curious about, you just have a confidence that if you're curious about it, someone else in an audience is going to be curious too. One of the things I often tell people, and I do do some production and I am interviewing some people. So it's kind of like the exception to the hosting rule. I often will conduct interviews and then substitute other people's voices in or what have you. I write questions for those interviews. I spend some time, a lot of time thinking about the things I want to cover. And, but the end, when I conduct the interview and I, I encourage others to do the same thing too spend a lot of time preparing, know that question list, walk in the door and never look at it for the first 80% of the interview. Never look at your piece of paper, just ask questions and be engaged and listen deeply and follow up. And then at some point, a natural break point in the interview, you're like, okay, let me go look at my question list to see what I want to talk to you about that I haven't asked you yet. And then look at what's missing and then go back and just fill in those things. Like, okay, here's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about that I, I didn't in our conversation. And the, for that first 80%, just ask questions. Listen, if you've prepared well, you'll know those questions, you know, and just let that because the best version of you will come out in that and the best version of them will come out as a result. And I think that really is, there are lots of other very common problems with interviewing that people actually don't listen to the answers they're given. They're, they ask a question that's on their paper. They listen when the other person's done talking, answering the question. They ask the next question on their list, and they never paid much attention to what was said. And it's just astounding when you listen to people who do that, which is a lot of people. And there's a nugget of really interesting something in that answer. You're like, wait, why didn't you follow up on that and ask what they meant about that? Like, how did you come up with your ice cream company? Oh, well, you know, I always loved ice cream when I was a kid. And after the the murder of every member of my family, I started experimenting around the kitchen and thought, oh, Rocky Road would be the first flavor I make. And the next question is, and do you use a specific kind of butter? <laughs> it's like, or I don't know, whatever ingredients in ice cream. I don't think butter is in ice cream, but what? But the, the point is, is like, what? You just missed the whole, my whole family was murdered. And, the, you know, was, and like, why did you not follow up on that very obvious question? <laughs> yeah, there was a podcast I was listening to. I can't remember which one, but the other day, and they were giving an example kind of like that, where they were being interviewed by somebody and they had mentioned like their mom had just died or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the person interviewing them was like, oh, well, that's nice. And then they went on to their next question they didn't even acknowledge it like they didn't hear it <laughs> mm. wow <laughs> very common so what do you see as the future of podcasting it does seem like it in recent years obviously taken off do you see it continuing to take off or kind of leveling out you know that's a great question i have no answer uh, i don't like to make predictions because i think that 
so many things can change. I mean, think about we predict what the situation the world is in now and we'll be in for the foreseeable future. It's like, no, you couldn't have. And not to say that change happens at that dramatic pace, but things change all the time. And often when I'm asked to give predictions, I do one of two things. One is I actually talk about things that are happening now that people aren't noticing, drawing some things together and saying, that once you notice it, then you won't stop noticing it and you will, it'll seem like it happened and you didn't realize it, but no, you actually, you, you were just, your attention was drawn to something. So I do an awful lot of that, like talking about that. I think this is an important thing that's happening and will continue to happen. And it's just not getting the amount of attention or recognition that you think it does. The other thing I do is I flip that question on its head which is something I learned during my Amazon time of instead of focusing on what's going to change, focus on what won't change. And you often find much more useful information when you focus on what won't change. People want to connect with others, right? They, they have a tribe of people who share interest with them. And one of them has a podcast, the rest of them listen to it. Whether it is, I, I seriously, in all seriousness, heard an email or got an email from someone who read the book this past weekend, who basically followed everything in the advice to set up all in the book, to, the advice in the book to set up his Mahjong podcast all about Mahjong. And he's he actually has several thousand people listening to this thing now and is really excited and has kind of like become the voice of the community of Mahjong players. And that's great. That's exactly what that book is created for. Is It's funny. I think that it wasn't so long after I wrote the book that I realized that what I was writing was not really a book about podcasting. It was a book about connecting with other people. And that radio, I have used radio to do that for many, many, many years. And the thing that excites me about radio and the thing that excites me about podcasting or just audio in general is its ability to connect people, whether they are a community of people or whether it is people who share a same similar interest, or if it's just you understanding people better from having heard their stories, that that sense of connection is really what drives a lot of this. People talk like, what microphone do I buy? Who cares? Right, you know, what software do I use? Do I do you prefer forty four one recording rate or forty eight k recording rate? Like nobody cares. And if you're worried about those things, then you're not going to succeed. If you're worried about how do I ask the question in an interview that my listeners want to hear, how do I tell them the details and the story that they're going to need? When I often counsel people a lot about thinking about the intended effect of a podcast, like why why are you doing this? You know, it's fun to do, but what's the point? Is the point to enrage someone or make someone cry or cry tears of joy, make people feel less alone, help people understand something that's happened or or understand each other better, make the world seem smaller, make people want to go adopt a puppy or go vote or do something, whatever it is. That's why we do this. And so many people forget that in the equation. They're like, I want to do an interview show where I talk to people about you know, stamp collecting. Well, why? What's the point? Are you trying to get more people involved in stamp collecting? Are you trying to make people who are involved feel more connected and understand things? My mom listens to just a handful of podcasts. One, a couple of them are quilting podcasts. And she like hangs out with these other listeners. They like go on cruises together and they do very, you know, they, they've done all these things because they follow this podcast. And that's like, it's an important part of my mom's life. And, and that's a very impactful, impactful thing to do with your time.
Yeah, I love how niche podcasting can be. You can pinpoint it's it all down. Niche. Yeah. <laughs> it's all niche. Every you know, some niches have millions of people. Mm-hmm. And some niches have, you know, there's a podcast I recently read about, never listened to, but read about, about medical office design. Hmm. Like how many people are there that care about medical office design? I mean, there are probably hundreds, but it's never going to be get millions of downloads. It, it can be successful reaching hundreds of people. The one you were talking about, how do you pronounce that again? And and what is that? Mahjong. I, I don't know if you told me what the name of the podcast is. Let me see if I can find it. Mahjong is a, a game with tiles. Yeah, it's called Author Memoir Mahjong Mondays, weekly podcast by the same name. So Mahjong Mondays is the name of the podcast. Hmm. And the, the host of that uh, wrote me and said, I used the book to figure out this podcast, and it's been uh, a really rewarding for him. So yeah, there's Mahjong Mondays. It's in Amazon and various places, so it's a real thing. So it's a game, basically. Like a- Mahjong is a game. Okay. Uh, oh, you know what Mahjong is? Oh, Mahjong is a game that's yeah. played with tiles that's kind of like dominoes, but uh, much more sophisticated. And it's like one of these games that it's kind of like chess, where you can just play a very simple game of chess, or you can play one that's incredibly, incredibly nuanced and sophisticated. <laughs> and people go crazy for Mahjong. I'm sure other people who listen to it are, are you know, into Mahjong, right? right. But he says, whether you are a new player or playing Mahjong for decades, this podcast is something for everyone. I would argue that's actually goes against the principles of the book of whether you are a new player or have been playing Mahjong for decades is not. That's two very, very different audiences. And it's hard to serve two audiences well. If he asked for my advice, which he didn't, I would tell him, pick one. Yeah, get as niche down as you possibly can, basically. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean doesn't mean that no that other people aren't allowed to listen. Mm-hmm. It's just who is the primary audience? I mean, the example I use, I think I, I think I, I use it in the book or I use it in promoting the book. I can't remember which one because it's been so long since I looked at the book itself. I talk about beekeeping. In fact, I know I talk about beekeeping podcasts a lot. There are surprisingly dozens of podcasts about beekeeping, and podcast targeting a new beekeeper who's figuring out this hobby for the first time or this, you know, this thing that you do with bees for the first time, it's a very different podcast than someone targeting people who've done it for decades. And the novice is going to have different questions and needs and, and different, you know, approaching at a different level. An expert, you can bypass a lot of stuff and both are valid ways to do podcasts. There's nothing wrong with them taking either approach, but it's awful hard to serve both in one podcast and do it well. And so, with Fern is a guy's name and his podcast about Mahjong, I'd say pick an audience. It's either the people who love it or the people who are coming to it for the first time and figure out who your primary audience is and, and speak to them. And if not, then we have to speak to them or you're going to give a, a lesser experience for those who are trying to find their place in it. And what are some good ways to connect? I mean, I suppose you could have people call in or write and ask questions and you answer those questions or you connect with them on social media outside of the podcast or do cruises like you had mentioned. Do you have any other suggestions? For for connecting to people? Well, yeah, through the podcast, either on the podcast or outside of it, but your community that of people that listen to it. Yeah, well, I think you need to, undoubtedly, you need to think about this organically as part of the show. I think that most people think that I've told this, I say this, it's interesting. I say this to individuals who are creating podcasts. And I say this to very large corporations who I, I advise 
I'll tell them if you think your job is to create an audio file and put it out every week or two weeks or whatever your release cadence is, that's not your job at all. The podcast is the hub of a community, which you are the curator of. And things happen, they start in the podcast, they may end in the podcast, they may periodically loop through the podcast, but there's a whole kind of network you're creating of people who exist, who uh, this podcast is part of what happens. And if you don't think that way, you will find you're not really engaging people the way you want. And so if that's the case, and that's true, and let's assume it is, then you need to ask, well, how do I curate that group? And you do it basically one listener at a time, and you engage with them, and you talk to them. And recently, my nephew was setting up a Twitch channel, which is you know the video game where people can watch play video games. And my advice to him was, which he didn't really ask, but I gave it to him anyhow, was you need to engage with every person who walks through that, who comes into your channel. If you want them to subscribe and come back and develop a fan base, you've got to talk to them. You've got to engage with them. You've got to chat with them. You've got to acknowledge them, call them out, go places where they are to find, to kind of recruit people to come in. It's really an amazingly social thing that is required to become a successful podcaster and to maintain those relationships of. And so I advise people to think about that organically and how they design their podcast and how they want it to exist in the world of solicit questions from listeners, talk to them outside of the podcast, and then in the podcast, mention the conversations you've had. And let's say that you're going to have Jack Black, or that's actually a real person. Let's just say you know Tom Smith is going to be a guest on your podcast. You tweet out or talk to them on Reddit or wherever you convene your community, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And you say, hey, I'm going to be talking to Tom Smith on this upcoming show. I'm going to talk about A, B, and C. What do you think I should ask about? Or what are some of the questions you have? And see if they'll give you some suggestions. And a couple people will, not many, but a couple people will. And then in the, the interview with Tom Smith, you say, hey, Bob over here, who listens to the podcast, wanted me to ask you this. And you give them, those listeners, the shout out of thank you for making that suggestion or thank you for giving me an excuse to bring this up with Tom. And then you acknowledge that. And then they're like, hey, that's really cool. And the next time you ask, more people will be involved. And then more people will be involved. Other things like meetups, virtual meetups, which are a little hard to do meetups now, virtual meetups, conversations. It has to be a real two-way exchange. It can't be just tell me what you think. Or did you like this week's show or something that's rather self-serving? It has to be something they actually want to talk about. And then you have to respond to everybody. You have to respond and be kind of the the ringmaster of that whole interaction. That's a good idea to ask, like, if you know you're going to have a guest coming up, to ask your audience, hey, so-and-so is going to be up. What kind of questions do you have? I hadn't thought about that, so I might implement that. Or even if you... Yeah, even if you don't maybe have a guest scheduled, you could say, well, what topics would you like me to discuss? Or I'm going to discuss this topic. What kind of questions do you have related to it? So right, kind of polling your audience basically prior. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they there are a number of people who hesitate to do that because they're like, oh, but I want to be mystery. I'm like, oh, surprise, my guest is this person. You're like, oh wow, like like who cares? I'm like, I you know, I I've worked on shows that have millions and millions of listeners, and not that many people get too tied up on you ruined this week's show for me by telling me who who the guest is. They want to know. 
and engaging them, that's like fun for them. I mean, there's things that I'm involved in in my life that when if, if a creator were to ask me a question, I would be thrilled. Or to respond to me or acknowledge that this idea came from me as a listener, I'd be thrilled. There's a radio service called Soma FM, which is a radio music streaming service that operates out of San Francisco. And I started listening to them probably 15 years ago. And they were soliciting contributions because they're commercial free. And I made a contribution. And the guy who runs it wrote me a note and said, thank you for contributing. It was like, I gave him like $25, right? He's like, thank you for contributing. That's great. I didn't know you were listening and I'm glad to have you. And I, I was in public radio at the time and I was so taken back by this guy had actually written me a note that I wrote him. I'm like, is that a computer generated thing? Or he's like, no. Like I just, every time a contribution comes in, I write someone and said, hey, thank you for, for supporting us. And I was blown away by that he took the time to do that. But, you know, I've given him a contribution every year since, and many other people do too. And it started with that small, little, kind gesture that kind of connects you to that person and that thing. And that makes so much of a difference. Or, you know, I, I have a policy that I've had for years of, you know, I've written four books. This podcasting book is the last one. Anyone who writes me gets a response. Anyone who writes me, every single person. And it may not be a long response. And it may not be in a, you know, the book. A lot of people call or, or, or write me and ask me questions. And I'll try to give them a quick response. I mean, like, I'm like, I sit there and spend hours replying to something. But I respond to every single person. And the most common thing I hear back is, wow, I, I never expected to hear back from you. Like, no, 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 you're my tribe. Uh, you bought this, you, you, you spent your money on this book. I can spend a, a minute and a half answering an email, mm -hmm. right? And it's that kind of thinking that gets, I think, you a relationship with an audience. And I think that people think it's all just about, I'm going to put out this file and someone's going to listen to it. And it's not, it's much more, much more connected than that. It's not a, for people who come from the broadcast tradition of, we just put it out in the world and throw it over the wall. And then people listen to it. They're very disappointed in podcasting because it takes a lot more than that to succeed. Yeah, those are good points. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I really appreciate your time today. And is there anything else that you wanted to go over? No, no. Thank you for asking. Okay. But um, no, it's uh, you did a good job. You you can find Eric at ericnewsum.com. That's N-U-Z-U-M.com. Or at magnificentnoise.com. And then I'll have show notes at thesarahstjohn.com. If you enjoyed and found value from this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you rate, review, subscribe, and share at ratethispodcast.com forward slash frugalpreneur. Until next time. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack, connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.